On the 21st of April, we celebrate the Feast of Saint Anselm, known as the father of scholasticism and a great defender of the rights of the Church in England. Saint Anselm lived from 1033 to 1109, and at a young age, he entered the monastery of Beck in Normandy under the famous monk Lanfranc. He was 26 at the time. He later on became the abbot at Holwyn Monastery, and eventually, when in England, was appointed as the Archbishop of Canterbury. St. Anselm was 60 years old when he became Archbishop, and he lived as Archbishop for 15 years, with a number of times in exile, given that King William Rufus was someone who made it difficult for life in the church. St. Anselm stood up for the freedom of the church in matters such as lay investiture, which basically was the, an encroachment of the life of the state upon the appointments of bishops. St. Anselm was known as a man of a very sweet character. There's a depth of nature in him and of grace, so that it was obvious he was closely in contact with God. He had a deep sense of friendship and love for old and new friends, a character at once both firm and gentle. For example, he won over Osborne, who was a very mean and difficult monk when Anselm was first appointed as prior. St. Anselm decided to win him over by kindness, giving him a certain dispensations. But as their friendship grew, he was able to bring him back to a, a more monastic way of life, a devoted way of life. And then when Osborne was sick, Anselm made sure to sit by his bedside. And when he died, St. Anselm would often express his love and devotion for Osborne, saying, do not forget the soul of my dear Osborne and asking for prayers for him. St. Anselm was known as the father of scholasticism, as I said earlier. In this I think the most important point is to take note, first of all, of Cordeus Homo, a work that he wrote, meaning why the God-man, or why did God become man in Jesus Christ? Here, Anselm moves away from the overemphasis upon the role of the devil in the lives of Christians and in the necessary winning of redemption for us by God, Instead, he emphasizes the point of the great offense that is given to God and the need for God to become one of us so that there's an infinite value to the offering of Jesus' life for us to bring about a reconciliation with God. Another point about him being the father of scholasticism and perhaps the deeper point about method is his great confidence that there's no ultimate conflict between faith and reason. In fact, when we talk about scholasticism, essentially what we mean is the effort to respect the life of the mind and to have a more systematic approach to investigating, to seeing the connections between, and to more profoundly penetrate and apply the truths of Christian revelation. In this, he gave a great impetus to the life of the church in terms of taking seriously the need to be ordered in one's theological thinking. 
One example of his respect for the mind is what we now call the ontological argument. Essentially, he's saying that there must be something greater than anything that can be thought, and there must be a demand of the mind and our understanding of reality that there is a supreme being, and that if it is the supreme being, that being nothing greater than which can be thought, it must have existence. Existence must be longing to the essence of the being that is demanded by the logic of reason, and otherwise it would not be supreme. Different people have had their views about whether this is a valid way of arguing, but the effort to respect the life of the mind and the proper sense of reason and to struggle to make sense of reality, even up to our acknowledgement that there is a supreme being, is a worthy way of approaching philosophy and theology in all the ages.